You're listening to Teach Me Thy Statutes, a production of the Ephesus School Network. Blessed art thou, O Lord, teach me thy statutes. The company of the angels was amazed. when they Hi, this is Father Aaron Warwick with Jason Everett, and you are listening to the Teach Me Thy Statutes podcast, episode number 32. Today's reading is from Acts of the Apostles, chapter 10, verses 44 through 48, and chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. In those days, while Peter was still saying this, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who came with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard him speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone forbid water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Now the apostles and the brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, Why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? But Peter began and explained to them in order, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something descending like a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, No, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has cleansed you must not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. As we begin today, Father, would you begin by speaking to this uh, amazement of the Jews who were with Peter at the gift of the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles? Of course, but as always, we need to introduce a little bit of context. Uh, Most specifically, I want to highlight that in the Bible and in Judaism, certainly at the time of Christ at least, you have this notion of two main groups of people. You can see that clearly in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. You have Jews and you have Gentiles. Now, among the Gentiles, of course, there are many different nations and ethnicities, but from an overarching perspective, you have these two broad categories. And why do you highlight that, Father? Because it's important to understand the mindset of the Jewish people in this story. Now, keep in mind, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush. Certainly at the time of Christ, just like today, Judaism was diverse. So you're going to have people who are Jewish by birth, but not very religious. And you're going to have people who were very politically involved, who maintained good relationships with Gentiles, most especially the civil and political authorities. But in this case, in this story, we're talking about the pious, religious Jews who took the Bible very seriously. And so, why were they amazed? Well, I really think you'd have two different camps or possibilities. On the one hand, some would be amazed because they would have had a serious superiority complex. Mm -hmm. And what do you mean by that? Well, they would have seen themselves as inherently superior to all Gentiles. They viewed themselves as exclusively the people of God. And to a certain extent, that is the biblical teaching on a very superficial level, and What I mean by that is that, yes, of course, the Jewish people had a special relationship with God, and we cannot, uh, certainly from a biblical standpoint, deny that. 
It was through them, through the Jews, that the law was given, that the prophets were sent, and then, of course, ultimately, that Jesus himself came to us in the flesh. So there was that unique, special relationship. At the same time, a deeper biblical understanding, as I've tried to show many times in podcasts and in my sermons and other classes, is that the one God, the biblical God, had always been, is, and will always be also the God of the Gentiles. He continued to care for them and to, and to interact with the Gentiles as well. And we see that in Scripture, including in the Old Testament. And as St. Paul said, in the fullness of time, he sent his Son, Jesus Christ, to be a reconciliation, not only between himself and all humanity, but to be a reconciliation between the division among humans themselves, among Jews and Gentiles, that they would view themselves as one people under God. And so on the one hand, these people who viewed themselves as inherently superior to the Gentiles were amazed that the Gentiles were treated exactly the same as them, that God in their minds was no longer distinguishing between Jew and Gentile, that he was treating all as his people. And what then uh, was the second reason that you think is possible for their amazement? I think the second possibility, at least for some of them, is that they're amazed that they were literally witnessing the fulfillment of God's promises through the prophets and Scripture. For those who were there who really understood the scriptural teaching and message, that God's Messiah would pour out the Spirit upon both Jews and Gentiles, that there would be this reconciliation, for them they were amazed that they were literally witnessing prophecy fulfilled, that they were living history, so to speak. Thanks for that explanation, Father. Very helpful. And moving on to a different question. The common practice of the church is for baptism to precede the reception of the Holy Spirit through chrismation. However, here we read that the household of Cornelius received the Holy Spirit prior to their baptism. Is this instance unique or of any importance? Yeah, great question. Very good question. I'm glad you brought it up because it actually ties into last week's episode and also my sermon from the Sunday before that episode. You'll remember that I said in both of those that we have to be extremely careful that we do not equate the body of Christ with what I call the institutional church. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that the body of Christ, the church, is not any sort of identifiable historical reality, that it is some sort of nebulous body. What I am saying is that one would be mistaken to idolize the institutional structure of the church or to idolize any specific hierarch or priest or official church person as though they are the fullness of the body of Christ. And the same can be said here about the Holy Spirit. And I'm making this distinction because, in my opinion, it's very important we understand that the individuals within the church hierarchy and even the groups of individuals, the synod of bishops and so forth within the hierarchy, do not and cannot control the body of Christ. As I said from Mark's Gospel, when Joseph asks for the body of Christ, he is instead granted the carcass. And unfortunately, English translations translate two separate distinct words from Greek into the same English term, body, so we miss that distinction when we just read it in English. But Joseph asks Pilate in Mark's Gospel for the body of Christ, but instead is given the carcass. Why? Because no one can control 
or manipulate the body of Christ. It is under God's direct authority and control. Joseph has no access to control it. I have no access to control it. You have no access to control it. The same can be said from the perspective of the Holy Spirit. Father, can you maybe distinguish a little bit then what you mean by that? I'm not sure I fully understand how that fits into the theology of our church. Of course. Uh, So the key distinction to recognize, I believe, is that the church, the body of Christ, which includes in part the institutional structure to some degree or another, discerns the Spirit. The body of Christ discerns the scriptural message and how we can live out that message in any age, in any era. And this is a very important distinction because, again, as I said, it is much different to say that the church recognizes or discerns the will of God over time and collectively among the hierarchy and the laity than it is to say that the church controls the spirit or that the church controls the biblical message. No, the church, if it is the body of Christ, submits to the biblical message. It submits to the will of God. It submits to the spirit. It does not control these things. And just to conclude this little aside, one of the main reasons I bring it up is so that people would not be spiritually and scripturally lazy. You are accountable to learn Scripture. You're accountable to learn to discern biblical truth from falsehood. You're accountable to learn to apply that biblical message in your life. And yes, we of course hope that priests and deacons and bishops and so forth will help you in these matters, but you cannot give up your responsibility and accountability and just turn it over and make it the responsibility of the hierarchy. Whatever this priest or bishop says or whatever the church leaders say at this time or that time is right, no, that's we can't live that way. That's not what we do. Discerning the truth and applying it in our times is a process we all must collectively go through, laity and hierarchy together. And we ultimately must recognize our job is to submit to Scripture and not to control or manipulate it. Thank you for that explanation. Now, back to baptism and chrismation. Why the difference between the church's historic practice of baptism first, reception of the Holy Spirit through chrismation second, while in this passage it was the reverse? Yeah, back to that. So what I just said is relevant because you'll notice that when we chrismate someone, which is actually the same thing as what is called confirmation in the liturgical so-called Western traditions, we say when we chrismate the seal of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And in virtually all of our divine services, with the rare exception of the 50 days between Pascha or Easter and Pentecost, we begin by invoking the Holy Spirit, saying, O heavenly King and Comforter, the Spirit of truth, who art everywhere present and filling all things. So I bring up these two prayers to show that the church is not claiming to control the Holy Spirit. It's not saying that in chrismation that the church is calling the Spirit down on someone where before the Spirit was not present. Because as I said earlier, and as the prayer we use at the beginning of the services shows, no one, not even the church, can control or manipulate the Holy Spirit. The Spirit blows where it wishes. It's everywhere present and filling all things. But again, using the language I used earlier, the church discerns the presence of the Spirit. It submits to the Spirit. 
And in the case of chrismation or confirmation, the church, again very specifically from the language of the service, places a seal on the one being confirmed. So, Father, if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, then is it a proper conclusion that the Holy Spirit can be working in someone or given to someone outside of sacramental baptism and then chrismation? Yes, absolutely, and we see it here in today's reading. I mean, really, how else can a Christian explain how a person who is not baptized comes to the church to receive baptism in the first place if they're not led by the Holy Spirit? The Spirit is at work throughout the world. It's up to us to discern that, to discern and submit where that is happening, and to avoid or oppose where it clearly is not happening. But getting back to the original question in chrismation, the church is merely recognizing the Spirit of God having been sent to the person and setting a seal on that. It is recognizing and publicly discerning that God is at work in that person. But make no mistake, the Spirit of God works outside the church, and we, the church, publicly declare that, essentially, in our prayers by saying again, the Spirit is everywhere present. The church does not control the Spirit, but submits to Him and discerns His presence. Father, I had a final question, but we're starting to run short on time. So, just very quickly, we heard about Peter's vision at the end of today's reading. Can you briefly explain the significance of this? Yeah, really, we could have an entire episode about this, perhaps, in the future. But in a nutshell, the vision is essentially showing what our prayer to the Spirit says, that the Spirit is everywhere present and filling all things. In this case, to show that the Gentiles have been fully accepted into God's covenant community. We all know that the Jews have special dietary rules, what we now call eating kosher. And what Peter's vision displays is what St. Paul will later say in a more explicit way, that the kingdom of God is not about food or drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father. In today's episode, we began by discussing the reasons for the amazement of the Jews at the beginning of today's reading. Father Aaron explained that there may have been two reasons for this. First, those Jews who were very religious and pious would have seen themselves as superior to the Gentiles. Certainly, the Jewish people had a very special relationship with God. But with a deeper understanding of Scripture, we see that God has always been the God of the Gentiles as well. St. Paul tells us that Christ came not only to reconcile himself to all humanity, but to also be a reconciliation between the divisions among Jew and Gentile so that they would view themselves as one people under God. The second reason given for their amazement may have been that some realized they were witnessing the fulfillment of God's promises through the prophets and Scripture. We then move to the circumstances of the baptism and reception of the Holy Spirit among the household of Cornelius. As Orthodox Christians, we are accustomed to the ordering of these sacraments with baptism preceding chrismation. However, Father Aaron made clear that in chrismation, the Church is not calling down the Holy Spirit upon someone, as the Church cannot control the Spirit, but can only discern the Spirit. Rather, the Church is confirming that the Holy Spirit is already present and active in that person, and then sets a seal upon this gift. We should also recognize and remember that the Holy Spirit is at work outside of the Church, as the Spirit blows where it wishes. 
Thank you for listening to Teach Me Thy Statutes. We hope you tune in next week for a new episode. Alleluia, glory to the O God. Alleluia, 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 glory to the O God. O our God and our hope, glory to thee.